My name is Doug. I'm the interim lead pastor here at Trinity, and I just felt so enriched by the worship this morning. I hope you did as well. Just the thoughts, and yeah, they, the, uh, the music selection, it was, it was great. You know, it's been said of Christians that sometimes we are too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good. And I want to challenge that notion this morning. I'd like to talk about that as we think of endurance, that unless we are heavenly-minded, we are of no earthly good. So we're going to be getting into that. But before we do, I'd like to invite you to stand with me. You know, the last several weeks, we've taken time to ask God to do his work through us. Pastor Bill gave us a challenge three weeks ago. He embedded that in Romans 12. And this is actually very important for us because God says, you have not because you ask not. And I think God just wants to know, we want these good gifts. We're going to use these good gifts. And so he says to us, ask, and I will give. So let's stand together. We're going to put the scripture up on the screen. Would you, in a prayerful way this morning, uh, work with me to go through this passage and ask God to help us to do his good, acceptable, and perfect will. Good morning, Lord. Because of your great mercy... I offer up myself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. This is my worship to you today. Help me to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. I want to discern and do your will today, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Have a seat. Right on. So, is it true that if we are too heavenly-minded, we are of no earthly good? As we think about that, God kind of directs us to this very, very familiar passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and this takes a, us into a very deep dive into the whole idea of endurance. So, if you have your Bibles this morning, I hope you do, would you open them to 2 Timothy chapter 2? And we're going to look at probably the first 13 verses or so. This is one of the classic passages on endurance that we need to be familiar with. But I want you to notice, as we look at this, this passage presents endurance in a much different fashion than we've looked at it so far. So far, we've looked at this idea of endurance as um, getting through the hard spots in life. We've thought about it in terms of hanging in there when the struggles are tough. We've looked at uh, holding on when circumstances are difficult and sometimes even disabling. And so we've looked at life and the things that we encounter and we've said to ourselves, God wants us to endure and he'll help us to do that. Today, God shifts our chair around to another place at the table. And he says, I want you to see endurance differently today. And I want you to see it from a heavenly point of view because it is certainly true in God's mind and in his word that until we are heavenly minded, we are truly of no earthly good. We need to have the long perspective. So the book of 2 Timothy uh, is written by the Apostle Paul to a young 20-something pastor named Tim. Right? He meets him in the city of Derby on his second missionary journey. You find the story in Acts 16. And he, as he comes into the city, he encounters this family, a mom, a grandma, and a boy... And uh, he realizes they are Christians from the first journey as he went through. They accepted Christ. The mom is Jewish. The dad is Greek, indicating he probably doesn't have a relationship with God. But they are all strong Christians. 
And Timothy, in particular, has this reputation in town as being truly an ardent, passionate follower of Jesus Christ. And so Paul, who's always looking for someone to mentor, someone to pour his life into, invites Timothy to come with him on this second journey with uh, Silas to strengthen the believers in the churches that were from the first missionary journey. And so Timothy joins them, and this friendship lasts for 10 years of being poured into by the Apostle Paul. Imagine if Paul were to do that with your eye, how that would enrich us and strengthen us and help and prepare us for endurance. And, and so we know that Timothy really benefited from this. If you go to 1 Corinthians 4.17, you find out that Timothy is Paul's representative to Corinth. If you go to the book of Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, you find that Timothy is the spokesperson for him at the church in Philippi. We know that Timothy was with him when he wrote 2 Corinthians and Philippians and Colossians and 1 and 2 Thessalonians and Philemon. He's mentioned in all of those settings. And ultimately, get this, ultimately he becomes the lead pastor at the church at Ephesus for four years. And it's in that setting that Paul writes to Timothy after this nearly 15-year contextual relationship, and he says to Timothy, you need to endure. You need to get through this suffering that is coming to you because you're sharing the gospel with people. You need to look at that suffering, but you have to see it from the eternal perspective. Timothy, until you become heavenly-minded, you're not going to be able to endure and have earthly good. So that's the context here. And you see, by the way, in verse 1, you see the heartbeat of this. Notice in, uh, actually, uh, verse 1 and 2. He says, you then, my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So there it is. Tim, you've got to be strong. Uh, you're going to face hardship as a Christian leader. And the source of your strength, uh, Timothy, is going to be knowing how good God has been to you through Jesus Christ. His grace will strengthen you. And the more you know it and pursue it and experience it, you're going to become strong. Now notice he also writes to him in verse 2, and... What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, when I've been preaching this message to the, the people who needed to hear it, to the church, to the outsiders, entrust that message to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Tim, you got to make sure that you pass on to others what you got. And by the way, that's what we do at Trinity. When we are discipling others, we are passing on what God gave us through the Word of God, through those who have mentored and taught us, and we're giving it to others, and we're saying, hey, you need to be faithful with this too. It needs to continue. That's our calling as Christians. And Paul says to Timothy, this is what I want you to do. Remind them of Jesus and the good gifts he gives of grit and joy and hope and truth and power. Pass that on and tell them to pass it on. Now, notice verse 3. This is where he gets to the heartbeat of enduring with a heavenly perspective, and he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So he says, Tim, don't be afraid to share in the same kind of suffering you've watched me endure. How did Paul suffer? 
think back to his descriptions of his sharing the gospel message and, and the pushback, the persecution, the pain, the suffering that Paul encountered. And he, he says to Timothy, Timothy, what I'm saying is you need to be like a Marine, an NFL quarterback, and an almond farmer. That's what you need to be like. You need to be like the person who understands that spiritual warfare is hell. And when your enemy is Satan, you will suffer unjustly for doing what is right because he hates the gospel message. That's part of the conflict. Timothy, you have to know that. You need to pay close attention to, to your post and your mission. Your aim is to please your commanding officer, Jesus Christ. It's not to get involved in temporary trends or uh, cultural demands or useless things of this life. Know what your commanding officer wants you to do and please him, not yourself. He goes on to talk about sports. Play by the rules. If you want to win, there has to be no question about how you competed. You need integrity and honesty and holiness. And remember to work hard in the orchard of ministry. And remember to take time to enjoy the fruits of your labor. Sit back with a handful of almonds and enjoy it, Timothy. He says, Timothy, this is really important stuff. So important that if you look at verse 7, he says, think about this. Think about what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Timothy, mull this over in your mind. Timothy, think about my comments. Ponder what I'm telling you. And as you do, Jesus Christ himself will give you insight and understanding into all of it. If you're looking at this, Timothy, and you're thinking, gosh, I don't understand how I'm to live and endure in all of the suffering, hey, the Lord will give you uh, insight into that. He says the same thing to you and I. If you have suffered as a Christian, you've shared the gospel with someone and it's been rebuffed. You've taken time to drive long distances to ministry opportunities and it's taken a wear and tear on you as an individual. If the culture around us does not support what you do and the moral values of your life and, and the message that good works are not going to get them to heaven, if there's a pushback, he says there's grace for you. True, there's suffering but there's also understanding for us. So verses 1 through 7 are, are Paul's final challenge uh, to Timothy and to us. And he says these four things. He says, be strong in uh, your pursuit of Jesus. Uh, secondly, he says, engage others around you uh, in, um, in the same pursuit. Keep an eye on how you live. And ultimately, ask Jesus to help you understand all of this stuff, because he will. But what he has not yet told Timothy is why this kind of endurance in the face of suffering is so important. He's told him, you got to share in my sufferings. you got to be a person who lives the life. But he hasn't said to him, this is why. And that's what we get to in the following verses. Folks, if you and I are told that we have to lose 40 pounds, that, that we have to do stomach crunches every morning and burpees every night, if we're told that every lunch is kale and quinoa, uh, salads for lunch. By the way, I like kale. I'm allergic to quinoa, so I get off on that one. If they say to you, avoid all kinds of Mexican food and every holiday treat. Uh, yeah, that hits home. <laughs> and you're going to be accountable for how you do it all. What is the question you ask? Why? Why is this so important? I like all that stuff. Except for the quinoa. I like it all. 
This is the question Paul comes to in this section. He says, I've just told you everything you need to know about how to keep going, but let me tell you why. Look at verses 8 and 9. He gives him three things that are important for us to have a heavenly perspective so we are of earthly good. We'll put the first one up on the screen for you. He says, taking a stand for the gospel will mean taking a hit from the world in which we live. You have to know this. Verses 8 and 9 says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. you got to focus your attention on this. For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Paul says the reason for living a life of self-denial and endurance and proclamation of the gospel is because of the gospel. Because of what it does in the lives of individuals. Now keep in mind, Paul's freedom evaporated as he became, became a vocal proponent of the gospel message, and he refused to be silenced. His freedom disappeared. He's writing this letter in 64 AD in a Roman prison. Three years before, Rome had burned. And Emperor Nero, most of the Roman citizens in Rome, thought it was his fault. He didn't do enough to clean up the slum part of Rome, which is where the fire started, and to... Uh, exonerate himself, what does he do? He pushes it off on the Christians. It's the Christians' fault. And so Paul is caught up in this persecution along with a lot of other believers. He's in the infamous Mamertine prison, think Sam Quentin, and he is chained to two other Roman soldiers, one on each side, 24-7. And he senses this may be his last communication with Timothy. So he's urging him, all of the most important things, stand strong, endure suffering, all of it for the sake of the gospel. And he says, the gospel is worth endurance and sacrifice. Do you believe that this morning? As a follower of Jesus Christ, do we truly believe that the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, is worth suffering and enduring so that others can hear? Because he says, if you're going to do this, you are going to take a hit from your friends, in business, in culture, in just about every avenue of our lives, there is a presence in our world that resists the gospel. Notice his self-description. I am suffering as a common criminal. The word suffer here is the Greek word to feel evil. That changes how we look at suffering. It was to feel evil the evil around him. Now remember, he has these rusted metal clasps and chains around his wrists. They were designed to be painful. He's being guarded by two Roman soldiers um, who were always given the most coarse and evil prisoners. And so they, they tended to treat them with harsh and calloused disregard. Uh, Paul has this cold dampness in the Mamertine. Uh, there was no light in this prison. Um, the poor food, the lack of sleep, the lack of warm clothing, uh, lack of personal hygiene, they're all distressing him. And it's all described in the present tense. This is going on hour after hour, day after day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And for Paul, these conditions continued until finally a few years later, he is beheaded by Rome for the gospel. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us that Timothy 
was also imprisoned soon after receiving this letter. And it says there that he was finally released from prison. And it was all for the same reason. So is the gospel worth suffering for? Is it worth it to go through suffering and endure for the sake of the gospel? I believe it is, absolutely. Let me give you three reasons that come out of the word of God. Number one, uh, because it's truly good news. It is good news, and people need to hear it. Paul writes in Romans 1.16 this, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It has the power to rip them out of the grasp of Satan and the darkness of this world and transplant them into the kingdom of light under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It has that power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. This condition that makes us right with God and makes us beginning to be right with people and right with the world that he has created. This righteousness is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the gospel is all about us and Jesus Christ and what he is doing for us. Now it's interesting, here in 2 Timothy 2, the only time in all of Paul's writings that he reverses the way he addresses Jesus. Everywhere else he calls him Christ. Jesus, the divine son of God who became man. Here and only here in this one passage, he says Jesus, the Christ. And he does that because he wants us to understand and to feel the emphasis that Jesus became one of us, a human being. That's the most important thing in this moment, in this communication. Because only human beings can die. God cannot unless he becomes one of us. And only a perfect human being can solve the sin problem with all of its cleansing power over death, removing our sins, and placing us in perfection through Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that's possible with Jesus Christ. And that is good news. Would you agree? Is that good news? Yes, it is. The world needs to hear that. So that's number one. Number two, it's important because it's about the resurrection. Jesus didn't stay dead. You notice here in 2 Timothy 2, it says he was taken out of the dead. Everyone else who had died before him stayed dead. But he was removed out of the dead. And Paul's emphatic about this. He says, Timothy, we are not talking about Jesus hanging on a cross in a church. We are talking about Jesus Christ victorious in heaven. This is the one we worship. This is the one who has victory over sin and death. Because no one else in human history has ever done this. Wrestled themselves free from the grip of death and come back to life. Do you know of anyone who has done that on their own except Jesus Christ? We have a lot of memorial services here at our church, and rightly so. But you don't see Chuck Smith walking around today on campus. He's in heaven with the Lord. Great place to be, but he is not wrestling himself free from death to come back to life. Jesus did this, and so he's conquered death, and he lives eternally, and he says, if you believe in him, so will you. The first hint of eternal, heavenly perspective. Thirdly, and this is very important, it is because Jesus is a direct descendant of Jesus, of, of King David. You see in the text there, descendant of King David. Why does he throw that in? Why is that so significant? It's because God had promised King David that he would always have a descendant on the throne of Israel and that that descendant would ultimately rule all of mankind. 
Every other political system would be underneath his rule. Jesus is that king of kings. And he tells us this eternal kingdom that Jesus is going to establish, we can be a part of it with him if we will suffer for the gospel, if we will endure, if we will hang in there as followers of Jesus Christ. And I love the way he ends this in verse 9. He says, hey, I am bound. I can't go anywhere I want. The only way I can actually communicate with others is writing to them. So Timothy, here's this letter. But the word of God is not bound. It's not bound. You and I can speak it aloud. And it is unleashed in our conversations. The word of God isn't bound in in that it overcomes evil with good. It is living and powerful, and it transforms life. The word of God is not bound in its ability to comfort the soul through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not bound in that it's the voice of Almighty God as he speaks to humanity today. But when you and I share this good news, there will always be pushback. John reminds us in 1 John 5, 19 through 20, he says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This world belongs to Satan today. And all who are in it, who are not followers of Christ, belong to his kingdom. And so we look at this larger picture, and he says in verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we who are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true and eternal life, the true God and eternal life. So, just as this gospel was a threat to the Roman Empire with its emperor worship, it was heresy to the Jewish Sanhedrin who didn't want a suffering king. We bring it into our world today, and it is going to be hostile to the claim that Jesus is the only way to God, and by the way, your good works don't earn you salvation. We're going to have pushback on all of that message because the ruler of this world hates the gospel, which we bear into our world. So taking a stand for the gospel means taking a hit from the world in which we live. But secondly, he says, our endurance is essential if others are to believe and be saved. If you and I don't endure and continue to share this gospel, others cannot be saved. It's the word of God that saves them. It's interesting, in verse 10, he says, therefore I endure everything. And notice who it's for. Look at your text there. Who is it for? For the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So the the gospel, the greatness of the gospel, is worth enduring anything anything and everything for it. Why? So that the elect can hear and believe. Now, I, I know that we have a lot of conversations about election and predestination and all of that. This is not the main point in the passage this morning. Uh, but let me just say this about this, this passage here and what, what Paul is saying. Paul uses this word in its divinely inspired, in his divinely inspired letters to us. So we do have to think about it carefully. He talks about this a lot. You'll see on the screen Titus 1.1. Paul writes to Titus. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. He writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. That's the idea of election. He picked us out in him before the foundation of the world. 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. And look at Romans chapter 9. And not only so, he writes, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older Esau will serve the younger Jacob. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is this wrong? Is this not fair? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So this whole issue comes right back to not evaluate the person's worth or a person's performance or a person's potential or anything else. It's based on God's mercy. It's not unjust. God chooses in a very just manner based on mercy. Many of you have read the books of C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, Problem of Pain, many other books by C.S. Lewis. He said, uh, because he was not searching for God, he said at one point, amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. For me, they might as well talk about a mouse's search for a cat. God closed in on me. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God picked you out. Mercifully, you don't, you don't deserve this, I don't. But in his mercy, he picked you out before the foundation of the world. And in our world today, God has others who have been picked, who are ripe for the gospel and he wants them to hear. I love what it says in Acts 18. So this is when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. All right, And Paul, it says, was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood is on your own hands, heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to Redlands. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It says to the Gentiles. I'll go to the non-Jewish people. If you guys aren't going to accept this, and there's always the choice there. There's always the will. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Now, verse 9 says, And one night the Lord came to Paul in a vision. Corinth was a tough town to evangelize. It was kind of like San Francisco or Beijing. You know, the gospel was not really welcomed in Corinth with all of its sexuality and all of its practices. And so Paul knew this was going to be an uphill battle, but Jesus comes to him one night and he says, do not be afraid, go on speaking, and do not be silent. I am with you, no one will attack you to harm you, and I have many in this city who are my people. People who don't yet know about me. There's a lot of them in this city. Paul, you've got to keep speaking and talking about the gospel so they can hear and they can come to God because they have been chosen in his mercy. And it says he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them, knowing there were willing ears and open hearts. Paul stayed and preached. And in our world today, in our community, in our circle of life, men and women, there are people you know that God has called and they just need to hear the gospel. Have you ever been nervous about sharing the gospel? 
It was not until I realized this truth that I felt freed up. That when I share the gospel, I'm not responsible for the results. I'm responsible to be that witness, to do it as best I can. But I'm going to run into people who are waiting to hear the gospel. Because God has said they belong to me, they are my people. And when they hear it, there is this result of, oh, this is what I've been waiting for. I could tell you story after story, and we don't have time this morning, of people I've talked to that God brought me into context with, and I just, conversation opened up, shared the gospel, bam, they go, yeah, that's what I've been waiting for. That's what Paul is talking about here. One Bible commentator, we'll have this on the screen for you, says, the gospel stirs one to endure all things. How? By results. God has promised to save people by the gospel. Therefore, no matter what it costs, no matter how much suffering we have to bear, we must endure it all for the salvation of people. This is the point of Paul, the gospel, the glorious truth that people could actually be saved from the ownership and control of Satan, forgiven of all past sins, made right with God, transformed in their beings, become agents of light and love to a lost world, and receive eternal glory, this stirred Paul to suffer all things, and he longed for people to hear the gospel so they could be saved. So, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Timothy, if you take a stand for the gospel, you're going to take a hit from the world. Satan does not like that. Timothy, endurance is essential because there are people who need to believe and be saved. And then thirdly, he says, this has a lot to do with heaven. He says, our endurance results in our reigning with Christ. Look at verses 11 through 15. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will live with him. He's talking about our identity with Christ in the death and resurrection. When we become a Christian, we are dead to the old sin. We are alive to God. He says, if you've died with him, you're going to also live with him. If we endure, this is the part we want to look at. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, the word there is disown. If a person in this world says, I want nothing to do with Jesus, I am not interested in that, forget it. I have no interest in following that man. If we disown him, he will disown us when we stand before him ultimately. I'm sorry, I don't know you. I've never known you. He says, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. He can't deny himself. Remind them of these things. Charge them before God. Not to quarrel about words. Don't get into these petty arguments about details. Pay attention to the bigger thing. They don't do any good. They ruin the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be shamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Did you know that verse was in this context? Isn't that interesting? So Paul wraps up his call to endure for the sake of the gospel, for heaven's sake, with this clear outcome for those who do. He says, as he sits there in the prison, he thinks of a song that has been very popular in the, American, or American, in the Jewish Christian culture of his day. He's in prison, and this song comes to mind, and he begins to hum it to himself. And it's a very familiar New Testament song, and he writes it down here for Timothy. This is the song, if you notice, right here in verse 11. It has four lines. He says, this is totally trustworthy. This song is not just good, it's true. And each of the, the lines begins with a conditional clause, an if. Now, we know in the American culture, we only have one way of saying if. And we're usually saying, I have no idea if it's going to work out or not, but if the Chargers win this week, it'll be shocking, right? 
But we have no idea if that's going to happen or not. We just hope. So it's, it's kind of this unconditional maybe in the uh, English language. We might say, if you can meet me for lunch, that would be great. Again, we don't have any guarantee. It's just an if you could, this would be great. The Greeks hated that kind of uncertainty. They wanted to nail it down. And so they had four ways to say if. We'll put them on the screen for you. Each of them indicated the greater or lesser likelihood of something happening. So here they are. Next slide, please. They had the first condition clause. Not the same as the Santa clause, by the way. I know we're getting close, but it's not the same. They would use what they called the indicative mood, which means it's going to happen. Okay, so first conditional clause was... This is definitely true. So they might say if, but if you saw the, the indicative mood, you would go, oh no, if and it will be is what they meant. Second conditional clause, same indicative mood, but different arrangement of the words. It was known as definitely not true. So the first two are, are definite. It's either true or it's not true. And you could tell that in the Greek language. Very clear. Third conditional clause would, would change to the subjunctive mood. And you don't have to know what that means, other than it, it says, well, it may or may not be true. It, it just wasn't certain. It might be true. This is more like the English if, isn't it? And the fourth was, again, subjunctive mood. It may or may not be true, but it's very doubtfully true. So third, it might be, and I hope it is. Fourth, probably is not. So which of these four is Paul using here? All four of these ifs are in the first condition clause. And so he says to them, he says to Timothy, look, these are all true. It's a trustworthy statement. But let's look at the one that's important for us. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Hmm. Until today, we have not really considered what the biblical word endure means. We've talked about endurance in a lot of different ways. We've used uh, English definitions. But when you go back to the original language... It's an interesting word, which is hupomeno. It's a military word. How many of you have served in the military? Can I see your hands? Veterans, thank you, by the way, for serving. Thank you. You guys know what this word means. It's this military word that means to stay in one place. It literally means hold at all costs. That's what it's telling us. So when we read this in the Greek uh, New Testament or in the English uh, New Testament, we have to picture in our mind's eye the 101st Airborne Band of Brothers who were told to hold St. Mariglis until the army arrived from the beaches of Normandy to relieve them. That's what he's describing. Timothy, you need to hold at all costs, no matter what. You have to endure for the sake of the gospel. So it speaks of hardship and not giving up ground to the enemy. And it's in the present tense. This isn't something you're going to do. It's not something you did. It's something you are doing right now. It's an ongoing bearing up under the load, ever-present holding on for the sake of Christ. And I like how the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 puts it. He says, therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised for yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and won't delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, does not endure, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction or fail to endure to eternal glory. 
I want to honor our time this morning. So I'm going to give you several passages to look up at home. I would have put them on the screen because they talk about this whole idea of enduring and reigning with Christ. But let me give them to you. And then I want to read for you just a little bit from a book that actually talks about will we reign with Jesus. So Revelation 3.21. Revelation 3.21. Write that down. Jesus talks about overcoming. You're going to sit with me on my throne, with my Father on his throne. There's a very tangible reigning. Revelation 5, 9 through 10. As the book is opened in heaven, those who are surrounding him cry out that this is for the saints and they will reign with him on the earth. Revelation 20, 4 through 6. Blessed and holy are those in the first resurrection. They will reign forever and ever. You and I are going to reign with Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? I'm going to take the last couple of minutes and do something I don't do very often. Plus, it'll help my knee. (laughs) I want to read to you out of chapter 21 of this amazing book called Heaven. It's by Randy Alcorn. Some of you have seen it, read it. If you haven't, I encourage it strongly. It answers the question, when someone passes into heaven, what is going on for them? What is God doing with them? What's the environment? What are their activities? What are their tasks? Chapter 21, he says... Will we actually rule with Christ? Listen to what he says. God created Adam and Eve to be king and queen over the earth. Their job was to rule the earth to the glory of God. They failed. Jesus Christ is the second Adam. The church is his bride, the second Eve. Christ is king. The church is his queen. Christ will exercise dominion over all nations on the earth. It says in Psalm 72, he will rule from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth, the Jordan all the way around. All kings will bow down to him, all nations will serve him. As the head of the human race, Christ, with his beloved people as his bride and co-rulers, will at last accomplish what was entrusted to Adam and Eve. God's saints will fulfill on the new earth the role God first assigned to Adam and Eve on the old earth. They will reign forever and ever, Revelation 22.5. He says, because I teach on the subject of redeemed humanity ruling the earth, I've had many opportunities to observe people's responses. Often they're surprised to learn that we will reign in eternity over lands, cities, and nations. Many are skeptical. It's a foreign concept that seems fanciful. Nothing demonstrates how far we've distanced ourselves from our biblical calling, like our lack of knowledge about our destiny to rule the earth. Why are we so surprised when it is spoken of throughout the Old Testament and repeatedly affirmed in the New Testament? He says, because crowns are the primary symbol of ruling, every mention of crowns as rewards is a reference to our ruling with Christ. Even in his parables, Jesus speaks of our ruling over cities in Luke 19. Paul addresses the subject of Christians ruling as it were in Theology 101. Do you not know, he writes in Romans 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know the saints will judge the world? Don't you know that you will judge angels? Did you know that? Do you believe it? <laughs> Rule over angels in 1 Corinthians 6. The form of the verb here in this question implies we won't simply judge them from a single time, but we'll continually rule them. If Paul speaks of this future reality as if it were something every child should know, Why is it so foreign to Christians today? Elsewhere, he says, if we endure, we will also reign with them, 2 Timothy 2. We just read that. 
God's decree that his servants will reign forever and ever on the new earth, Revelation 22, is a direct fulfillment of the commission he gave to Adam and Eve to be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every living creature that moves on the ground. When I write and speak on this topic, people often respond, but I don't want to rule. <laughs> Anybody here feel that way? It's like, I do not want that responsibility. That's not my idea of heaven. He says, well, it is God's idea of heaven. We are part of God's family. Ruling the universe is the family business. To want no part of it is to want no part of our Father. I know it may sound spiritual to say we don't want to rule, but because God's the one who wants us to rule, the spiritual response is to be interested in his plans and purposes. Whom will we rule? Other people. Angels. And if God wishes, he may create new beings for us to rule. Who will rule over us? Other people. There will be a social hierarchy of government. But there's no indication of a relational hierarchy. That's so important. In other words, the Apostle Paul will be in a position of greater leadership than most of us. But that doesn't mean he'll be inaccessible. There'll be no pride, envy, boasting, or anything sin-related. Our differences will be a manifestation of God's creativity. As we're different in race, nationality, gender, personality, gifting, passions, so we'll be different in positions of service. All of us will have some responsibility in which we serve God. Do you agree with that? We should. Because God has given us gifts here and now to be used and developed so that we will use the same gifts and abilities and personality in heaven. There's no disconnect between this world and the next other than complete transformation and the use of all that he has given us. The word of God says your deeds will be sent ahead for the purpose of use. The humble servant will be put in charge of much, whereas the one who lords it over others in the present world will have power taken from them. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. The owner has his eye on us. If we prove faithful, he'll be pleased to entrust more to us. Last part. I've got two minutes. Of course, not all positions of responsibility over others involve people. Adam and Eve governed animals before there were any other people. Some of us may be granted the privilege of caring for animals. My wife would love that, especially being responsible for dogs. And if you're a cat person, cats. Perhaps some will care for forests. Ruling will likely involve the management of all of God's creation, not just people. There's more. I think what Paul is saying to us, God is saying to us this morning through uh, Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, is you need to endure in this world for the sake of the gospel because until we are heavenly perspectived, what would be the word? Have a heavenly perspective. We really can't make a difference in our earthly good. And the gospel is what people need. And so he invites us to share it with others. Let me take a minute and pray with you. We're going to ask the worship team to come back up and close our service. I'm so glad you were here this morning, and I pray that we will take to heart what God is saying to us. Father, thank you so much for um, Timothy, his willingness to be faithful and, and to suffer as Paul did and as the gospel uh, requires. God, I pray that in our world today, as we have opportunity, free our lips to speak of the gospel. May it not be bound. 
Father, may we be looking at the person to whom we are speaking, not as someone who is resistant, but perhaps someone who is actually looking to hear that very message. They're just waiting for someone to tell them. And Father, we get that incredible privilege to share this good news. We know there'll be pushback. We'll take a hit from the world, Father. But this world is Satan's. It belongs to him until you redeem it. And you call us to be with you to rule and reign. So God, help us to be faithful. This is a new way of looking at endurance. Help us to walk with you, to suffer with Paul and Timothy and Jesus and others, knowing that there is a greater good for the world and ultimately for us. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. We pray you uh, for these things and praise you for these things. Amen.